Canada is the quintessential transatlantic country. Our security and prosperity are intimately tied to security and prosperity of both sides of the Atlantic. Our NATO allies are and will continue to be central in protecting and defending Canadian interests and values. Canadians sacrifice blood and treasure to defend freedom and democracy in Europe, and Canadians continue to stand on guard in defense of our allies today. This is Across the Pond, an eight-part series by the McDonald laurier Institute's Transatlantic Program in cooperation with NATO Public Diplomacy Division, where we explore current and emerging challenges Canada and our NATO allies are facing in a world in flux. I am Dr. Balkan Devlin, a senior fellow at MLI and co-host of Across the Pond. In this episode, we are looking at the Arctic. This episode is recorded in two parts. In the first segment, I'm joined by Brigadier General Pascal Gadbu, the commander of Joint Task Force North, and we discussed the role of and the mission of Joint Task Force North, how the Joint Task Force engages with local and indigenous communities, what the whole of government approach to security in the Arctic means, and more. In the second segment, I'm joined by retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman, former Vice Chief of Defence Staff of Canada, and we had a wide-ranging discussion on why Arctic matters for Canada, what are the challenges Canada faces in defending its security, interests and sovereignty in the Arctic, and what needs to be done to ensure that Canadian interests are protected in a changing Arctic. Please enjoy this episode with Pascal Gadbu and Mark Norman. Welcome, General Goodbow, to Across the Pond. It's a pleasure to have you here to talk about the Arctic and the role of Joint Task Force North in defending Canadian security and interests in the North. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, extremely excited to be able to participate. I'd like to start, Pascal, if I may, by asking what's your own background? Provide a little bit about you know context about yourself for our audience before we start and start talking about the Arctic and, and its importance for Canadian security. And prosperity. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, before I start, I, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from uh, Joint Task Force North Headquarters, which is located in Samba Cay on uh, Chief Draghi's territory in Treaty 8, the traditional home of the Yellowknife's Dene and uh, the North Slave Métis. I'm here in Yellowknife, recently took command of Joint Task Force North in May 2021, and I've been in the Canadian Forces for just over 31 years now. I initially joined as a Communications and Electronics Engineering Officer, and I graduated from the Collège Militaire Royal de Saint-Jean in 95. And since then, I've had the opportunity to serve with the Joint Single Regiment from where I deployed to Afghanistan. I've had four assignments in support of NORAD operations in Cold Lake, North Bay, and Colorado Springs, and three assignments with CAF training institutions as an instructor and then later on as a commander. That is a, a very a wide range of experiences, um, you know, ranging from Afghanistan all the way to the north um, over here. And I think that multi-domain, you know, multi-interesting you know, and, and harsh environments is very you know helpful and handy in your own position right now. Could you give our audience a bit of a sense of what the responsibility and the mission of the Joint Task Force North. Absolutely. Joint Task Force North is one of Canada's regional t- joint task forces. And uh, our area of responsibility covers the three territories of Yukon, the Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. We are responsible to coordinate CJOC-led uh, operations in the North, as well as coordinating any CAF activities that are happening here 
to uh, ensure that we notify indigenous governments and communities of what the CAF plans to do here. Of course, this excludes NORAD operations and search and rescue operations, given the timeliness of the response required for those events and that they fall under different responsibilities. To me, it looks like the Joint Task Force North acts as a hub for a variety of Canadian federal, local and indigenous government activities in the region and thus provides you with a good sort of bird's eye view of what the interests are for for Canada in the Arctic. From your own perspective, could you give us a bit of an overview of what the Canadian interests are uh, in the Arctic and why Arctic matters uh, for Canadian defence and security? Well, absolutely. I think uh, the Arctic really is fundamental to Canada. I mean, it it comprises uh, more than 40% of our territory and over 75% of our national coastline. And it's really an integral part of our identity uh, as a country. Uh, When everybody talks about the Canadian North, it really strikes that imagery in the mind of people, both here at home and abroad. And as well, Indigenous communities are at the heart of Canada's North. And they do represent a significant percentage of the Northern population. We're talking about 25% in Yukon, 50% in Northwest Territories, and 80% of the population in Nunavut being Indigenous. For us, for the Canadian Forces, it is very important as uh, we plan operations here that we do coordinate uh, with the Indigenous governments and and communities. We work continuously to expand and deepen our relationship uh, with them through these routine engagements and the planning of our defence activities and operations. The Arctic is very significant for Canadian defence and security uh, on various fronts. First, from an economic perspective, Canada's North offers considerable potential in natural resources, and that is drawing international interest. As we look at approaching this potential, it's vital that we do so in a manner that ensures environmental stewardship, benefits the local economies, and addresses national security concerns. So that's really a whole-of-government effort to make sure that we do this responsibly. The Arctic is also strategically important from a continental defense perspective. Our northern air and maritime approaches to the North America are potential avenues of attack, and as such, we must ensure that we maintain proper all-domain situational awareness and a proper presence in that we're prepared to respond to any threat. This is especially significant right now because there's been many technological advances in multiple domains, including the advanced cruise missiles and hypersonic weapons that can reach North America through the Arctic and are eroding that advantage that we've had in the past of geography that has provided for Canada's defense. I'd like to come back to the capabilities and the emerging threats due to particularly the hypersonics and and other developments in the gliding vehicles and whatnot. But I think what you highlighted is an extremely important in your initial comments about this whole of government approach and its centrality, in other words, of defending Canadian interests and security, particularly in the North. When I talk with people and tell them that Canadian Arctic, the three territories, cover a landmass that is greater than the European Union combined, but only have about 115,000 people living in it, compared to other Arctic nations such as Norway or Russia, which have much higher population numbers in their own Arctic, which provides its own challenges. To give the audience a bit of a more sort of concrete sense 
of how does the Joint Task Force North protect and, and contribute to the Canadian defense and security and interests in the North through this whole of government approach. Uh, could you give us an, an example of, of your you know, sort of daily operations or the missions that you, you take so that it's more concrete in the minds of the Canadians rather than just you know, big, great white North in a romantic sense? Absolutely. So first, I think it's important to understand what is Joint Task Force North from a footprint perspective. Our permanent presence for the Canadian forces begins with JTFN, Joint Task Force North, here in Yellowknife, and our two detachments that are located in Whitehorse and Iqaluit. So that we have a connection with all three territorial governments, our federal partners, as well as the indigenous governments in that leadership. But in addition to this, we have 440 Squadron, which falls under the Royal Canadian Air Force, and one Canadian Ranger Patrol Group at quarters, which are both located in Yellowknife, with one CRPG falling under the Canadian Army. But on top of this, we have about 1,200 Canadian Rangers that are spread across 60 of the 72 Northern communities. So this begins that initial footprint, which is a much higher ratio of CAF personnel to the general population compared to the South. On top of this, we have, of course, Canadian Forces Station Alert, which is the northernmost Canadian Armed Forces outpost and the northernmost continuously inhabited place in the world. We have the CAF Arctic Training Center in Resolute Bay, Nunavut, and we have the uh, Royal Canadian Navy Naval Facility in Nanisivik. In addition to this, uh, we have a number of assets that are being used by NORAD, North American Aerospace Defense Command, such as the North Warning System sites and uh, our three forward operating locations in Canada that are in Yellowknife, Inuvik, and Iqaluit. So the way we maintain contact with other government partners, it begins with Operation Nanook, which is our signature Arctic training operation and reinforces the CAF as a key partner and expert in Arctic safety, security, and defense. Okay, we do this through four key activities throughout the year. We have Up Nanook Nunalavut that takes place in February and March, usually each year, and that demonstrates the CAF ability to operate in the iArctic environment. And we do this by testing capabilities in the North, ensuring interoperability with federal government partners and international allies. We then have Opnanuk Tetigit in a June-September timeframe. That is a whole of government activity that's focused on really the regional other government departments and agencies and non-government organizations in the conduct of a series of safety exercises. So in practical terms, that means we will look at natural disaster scenarios or other potential public safety emergencies that may occur that are of concern to the territorial governments. And we'll look as a whole of government at our emergency preparedness and emergency response. We discuss the scenarios, we plan an activity, and then we test our ability to respond to these exercise scenarios working together so that we are prepared should an actual emergency occur, that we have well-oiled mechanisms between the various departments and level of governments to be able to respond in a timely manner. We then have Upnanuk Nunakput in August that focuses more on domain presence and surveillance along the Northwest Passage. And then we have Upnanuk Tugalik in August, September that supports and builds upon the CAF maritime capabilities in Canada's northern regions. Once again, working with international partners in this case to ensure that we have good interoperability between departments and between militaries. It seems to me that this is a year-round planning and training and readiness uh, missions 
that uh, take advantage of, of various capabilities that are spread across Canadian North, which also involves partnerships with allies. For the audience, what's the role of the Joint Task Force North uh, when it comes to, for instance, conducting joint training missions and exercises with NATO partners? In this podcast, we talk a lot about the importance of NATO for Canadian defense and security and working with NATO allies. And of course, we have Norway and, and Denmark, in addition to the United States, is our Arctic uh, neighbors who are also NATO members. Is that a sort of a mechanism within which uh, Joint Task Force North is involved with other NATO partners to, to do be beyond bilateral relationship, but within a NATO framework that engages in the Arctic? Uh, absolutely. So I said th- there are two aspects to this. First, from a Canadian Armed Forces writ large, the CAF is increasing its participation in multinational exercises in the Arctic and continue to encourage its key Arctic and non-Arctic allies and partners to participate in, in joint activities in Canada's Arctic. So where JTFN fits in this picture is with regards to Operation Nanook. So when we look at our various op Nanook activities, both during the winter, uh, the spring and the summer, we do invite NATO member nations to participate in those activities, subject to their areas of interest and capabilities that they may want to test either new capabilities or existing capabilities that they want to verify interoperability with partners, and also to maintain our respective Arctic capabilities to operate in the North in this fashion. You have mentioned the sort of the emerging security challenges, particularly because of the new uh, weapon technologies. And of course, in a more sort of a decade or two framework, the climate change and how that changes the operating environment in the Arctic, not only sort of the receding of the sea ice, but also the melting of the permafrost and the need for infrastructure to deal with those changes. Could you give us a bit of your own sense of what are the new new threats and challenges to Canadian security and interests in the North that you, you see are coming up and emerging in the next 10 years or so? Uh, no, that's a great question, Balkan. And uh, I think two areas that I would like to focus on that are of concern to us are both climate change and strategic competition in the area. So from a climate change perspective, this has direct implications for safety and security uh, in the Arctic. And you've already mentioned uh, several of the things that are happening. The permafrost degradation, coastal erosion, that are threatening our northern infrastructure and the livelihood of northern communities, as well as the receding sea ice that is changing, altering really the accessibility and the maritime activities in the area. So for us, what that means is that defense infrastructure that's essential for both NORAD and operations, as well as facilitating our mobility and rapid response capabilities are increasingly being impacted. The other thing that we've seen is that extreme weather conditions are leading to an increased frequency and severity of events that demand military support to civil authorities for domestic emergency response and search and rescue uh, operations. So from a JTFN perspective, uh, what we've seen is an increase in requests for assistance for pandemic response, flood mitigations, and most recently water contamination across our three territories as well as uh, numerous requests for ground search and rescue assistance when it exceeded uh, local ability to to handle. And of course, the ongoing air and maritime search and rescue that happens through our GRCCs. So what that means for us in a practical perspective is that as a whole of government, we really have to consider how we can best meet that growing demand. So we have to look at our emergency preparedness, emergency response, and recovery, and how we will tackle this uh, as a country. For the CAF, that means understanding how we can best meet uh, that demand and and prioritize response without undermining our ability to fulfill other core missions assigned to the Kenyan forces. 
So from the strategic competition perspective, what we're seeing is there's a growing international interest and competition in the North for both Arctic and non-Arctic states that are seeking to share in a region's natural resources potential and really elevate their strategic position. In pursuing their economic, uh, strategic, and military interests, these competitors are really demonstrating a much more assertive posture, and they're using advanced military and dual-use capabilities to be able to operate in the Arctic. Uh, two actors that come to mind, of course, Russia, that maintains the largest military presence in the Arctic and continues to invest heavily in infrastructure, advanced capabilities, and conducts major military exercises in the North. And we have China that's a self-styled near-Arctic state, and they've become increasingly involved in Arctic affairs, and they are seeking to establish a strategic foothold in the region. And as they do so, we expect that they will continue to make use of all levers of state power to assert uh, their role and influence. They will employ a wide range of dual-use capabilities while using below-threshold tactics to advance their interests, right? Below the threshold of armed conflict, basically, to act. So in the face of all this, Canada is aiming to continue to ensure that the Arctic remains a region of low tension and that we preserve the rules-based international order. It's quite important that you identified the two of the groups of challenges, both dealing with increasing you know, domestic emergencies and changes, particularly due to climate change, but, but also other factors, as well as the strategic competition at the, at the great power level. About a couple, couple of weeks ago, in a webinar uh, with General Von Heck, the NORAD commander and NORTHCOM commander, I asked him in a, a question about what his Christmas wish list would look like when it comes to the North American defense uh, from the Canadian side, if, if he were to ask. And he listed a number of things, including more domain awareness, including undersea surveillance, infrastructure to uh, enable more sort of long-term operation capabilities and stationing, as well as the modernization of NORAD. And of course, from his perspective, it was looking at more on the strategic competition. If I were to ask you the same question, what new capabilities and investments on both sides of the mission you have identified, dealing with the domestic as well as the strategic competition component that the Canadian Armed Forces need to invest and think and plan for, what those would look like? Well, I would say first that the good news is that strong, secure, and engaged Canada's defense policy has committed Canada to improve our mobility reach and footprint of the CAF in the Arctic, including working with the U.S. to modernize uh, NORAD. And uh, in fact, the 2021 federal budget has committed $252 million over five years as initial funding to support continental defense and NORAD modernization. So that is fantastic news. We already have initiatives in progress to help address some of the challenges that you've mentioned. So the new Arctic offshore patrol ships for maritime surveillance are a great win. In fact, I believe you're aware, HMCS Harry DeWolf recently transited through the Northwest Passage, and they've been the first Royal Canadian Navy ship to do so since 1954. It was quite impressive to get a chance to meet with the Harry DeWolf when they were transiting through Kugluktuk and to see this new capability in action. We also are working on space-based surveillance and communication capabilities, remotely piloted surveillance systems, and modernizing long-range communication capabilities to really help bolster CAF operations in remote regions of Canada, including the Arctic. And so for me, these will all help us in achieving one uh, of the, the key challenges I see is improving our pan-domain situational awareness in the Europe. Because it's a vast territory, it is sparsely populated, and as we see an increased level activity from a tourist, commercial, academic research perspective, it is vital that we have a clear visibility on what's happening from a whole-of-government perspective, and also being able to share that situational awareness with our allies so that we know what's happening both within Canada and on our flanks.
So definitely situational awareness is a priority. And this goes hand in hand with maintaining and strengthening our partnerships. There's no doubt that the pandemic in the past two years has been a major focus for uh, all governments. It has interrupted routine activities that we are now resuming. So as we do so, strengthening those relationships, revisiting how we do business and how things have changed is vital. This is where we talk about human resources investment to build those partnerships, having the right connections and the right engagements so that we understand each other's areas of responsibilities and how we can collaborate and find synergies. Finally, I would say that the big objective for us is really setting the conditions for success for that evolving future operating environment due to uh, the changing climate. Understanding that infrastructure is eroding much faster than initially anticipated in the North. Understanding how that will impact our Northern operations and uh, how the changing conditions will require us to adapt and manage that demand. The investments being made are setting us in the right directions to ensure that we have the proper awareness, that we can communicate effectively in our northern area of uh, responsibility, and also that we can get uh, where we need to in a timely manner if we need to project forces across this vast AOR. From what I'm hearing is the focus would be on better presence, continuous presence, ability to communicate across the board, ability to know, sense what's going on earlier, farther, and more wide-ranging than before in order to develop the necessary policies and responses in a timely manner as, as things change, both on the environmental level with the climate change, but also with the changing geopolitical conditions. Our focus or the sort of resource and investment focus will be primarily about engaging in that sort of information domain to be able to gather other, other resources. One last question before we wrap up, and you have alluded to this before when you uh, mentioned that it is important for Canada to keep the Arctic as a low conflict and largely cooperative area in the world that is based on the number of agreed rules. What would a worst case scenario say in 2035 in the Arctic would look like for Canada? A worst case scenario would be a fragmented Arctic with disregard to international law and rules that would result in irreversible ecological damage to the region, irresponsible exploitation of resources that would have repercussion for the rest of the world. I think in a situation like that, we not just we as a nation, but the humanity would be facing dire consequences for hundreds of years to come. So what I see as our responsibility to avert this worst case scenario is keep fostering collaboration in the Arctic, understanding our responsibility to be good stewards and ensuring that the people who live and depend on the Arctic uh, on their daily lives are protected and are invested to have good control and influence over their future. And so that we be good partners in ensuring this and giving them a voice. Well, I'll take this as a very optimistic <laughs> uh, wrap up for our conversation. Before we end, General do you have any last points that you'd like to make? I would like, again, Balkan, to thank you for this opportunity in discussing this important topic. I would say that I've been extremely impressed by the team here at Joint Task Force North. When I arrived, it is a very different environment to operate here in understanding the nuances of what it means to conducting operation in the Arctic. And the expertise and breadth of knowledge of our team has really uh, enabled us to be able to tackle an unprecedented number of contingency operations in very difficult circumstances. I was impressed beyond belief in the collaborative attitude of all our partners 
in rolling up our sleeves and working together to find innovative solutions to the problems that we were facing. So I'm very thankful for the Joint Task Force North members, the CAF force generators that support us in accomplishing our mission, our rangers that have been our eyes and ears and have helped us connect with the communities. And again, all the, the federal, territorial, and indigenous government partners, as well as uh, academia that help keeping us informed and uh, the NGOs and allies that have worked with us to keep making this a better place and respond to crises as they happen. Well, General, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your perspective on this very important region and what Canadian Armed Forces, together with federal and local and Indigenous partners, do to protect Canadian security and interests in the North. Well, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Have a great day. Hi, this is Balkan Livlen, and today I'm joined by Vice Admiral Mark Norman. Mark, welcome to Across the Pond. Well, good morning, Balkan. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. It's always great to have you and be able to talk on broad challenges that Canada faces at the international level. And today we'll be talking about the Arctic. But before we jump into that, for our audience, just a very brief, tell us a little bit about your own background and your career at the Canadian Armed Forces. Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Being well-known is both a blessing and a curse in some respects, but I retired in 2019 after about 38 years in the military as a naval officer. I joined the reserves while I was studying in Kingston, Ontario, and then transferred to the regular force, and my career saw me serving primarily um, on the East Coast, but sometimes on the West Coast, and had a variety of different positions both at sea and working ashore as my career progressed. And, and ultimately, I had the honor of commanding Canada's Navy in the 2013-2016 timeframe and appointed Vice Chief of Defence Staff after that and before I retired. In a nutshell, it's me, passionate about Canada. I'm passionate about the discussion of Canadian security. And, and I look forward to our conversation this morning about a really important part of Canada's geography and certainly of strategic interest to all Canadians, and that's the Arctic and Canada's north. Thanks. I think that that passion comes quite clearly when I read and listen to your commentary and analysis. And you know, since uh, I think retirement, that also enabled you to emerge as one of the key strategic thinkers when we think about Canadian security and defense. So very glad to have you here. Let me start by asking you your take on what are the key interests for Canada in the Arctic? If you just could provide a, a brief overview of what is that actually matters for Canada when it comes to the Arctic. The answer to the question is as vast as the territory itself. And I think perhaps we look at this through a couple of lenses. I mean, the first and perhaps most obvious lens is that this is part of our territory. No matter how you look at it, and, and there's different views Geographically, um, we can look at the Arctic Circle as a defining point. You know, what exactly are we discussing physically? The archipelago itself, and certainly the waters around it, in and amongst the islands of the archipelago and up into the Arctic Ocean. There's a significant geographic and territorial component to this, which is part of our country. I mean, Canada loves to point out to anybody who's listening that, you know, we have the second largest country in the world. Well, the vast majority of that is uh, well beyond the frame of reference of most Canadians who live within a few hundred kilometers of the U.S. border. 
So there's an interest right there. This is our territory and extensions of our territory and our maritime approaches, which just happen to be to the north of us as opposed to the east of us or to the west of us, which is how we have historically and traditionally viewed ourselves geographically. The second consideration would be why this is important in terms of the geostrategic issues associated with our Arctic neighbors, some of whom are good friends and allies, and some of whom are potential adversaries. That presents a number of important considerations as it relates to not only the territory, the approaches. These are sort of the traditional military uh, dimensions of the conversation. A third lens would be the economic lens. This would be tied to obviously minerals, oil and gas, and development of the North in other ways with respect to trying to build infrastructure, uh, develop the potential economic opportunities of Northern communities and the people who live in the North. And then the last component of this, and probably the most topical at this moment in time, in Canada at least, would be the environmental uh, considerations. And we tend to have a very romantic view of the Arctic. We see it through images of ice flows, polar bears, Aboriginal people, and those kinds of romantic images. And the concern, of course, is that the environment is being threatened and that as we look at the impacts of global warming, they are accelerated in the north. And uh, what does that mean in terms of its impacts on the physical environment, the geography, and uh, those other considerations that I mentioned, be they economic or, or security. So there's a, a variety of considerations here that if you were to look at it through the perspective of maybe like a Venn diagram, you would see four or five uh, overlapping and intersecting considerations that make it an important and fascinating part of who we are as Canadians. No, but I think it is very important to put the context for this very complex and interrelated domains that actually form Canadian interests across the board. So we already start talking about a little bit on that, but given the complexity of the situation and interaction between geopolitics and environment and natural resources, what would you be described as the top three security challenges today Canada faces when it comes to the Arctic? Okay, so as it relates to the Arctic as a region and as it relates to defense and security specifically, I would say the first and most significant concern as I look at this is our fundamental lack of understanding as to what's actually going on up there. And so that's within our own territory, our own approaches, and then obviously beyond those approaches. So this has to do with what in military parlance is referred to as situational awareness. We don't have appropriate surveillance capability of our own Arctic. We don't know what's going on in our own backyard, literally. And I think that that is a, of primary concern for a variety of reasons. And then if you layer on top of that, what I would characterize as a secondary concern, which is, you know, what are the potential threats? We are unable to detect those threats in a timely and uh, reliable fashion. And therefore, we would be unable to prepare for or respond to any potential incursions, threats to the Arctic. And I think the third most significant issue, which really brings the importance of the other two things into play, 
is, well, who else is up there? What are they doing? And why does that matter to us? And when we start to see a return to the great power politics of the 20th century, uh, we're now seeing a reemergent Russia who is unquestionably the dominant Arctic power at the moment. We start to see the unquestionable interest in Arctic affairs by the Chinese. It starts to create a geostrategic environment whereby there's a growing uncertainty and potential opportunity for, if nothing else, misunderstanding. Worst case scenario, where we could find ourselves in, in situations where things escalate and we have to do something about it. So three layers, if you will, to that concern, but it really starts with, we have very little idea what's going on in our own backyard. And I think that should be a concern to Canadians. And I think that's a great point to, to to pivot to what kind of capabilities and investments would be needed. Because what you were saying, and I keep hearing and reading about, I think this same concern, people keep talking about multi-domain awareness and why it is needed. And I know from listening to some of the American commentators, as well as officials, that they also keep basically in a roundabout way, talk about how and why sensing and surveillance and, and awareness capabilities in, in the Canadian North really need to be sort of upgraded and, and extended and so that we can see farther, more wide and earlier when we face these different different challenges. As you follow, it is also um, domestically, in, in terms of politically, it's hard to make those sort of decisions to make the investments because they do require some, some you know, forward planning and putting important resources. Given that is with the great power competition as well and the changing Arctic, which also changes you know, the geography of the Arctic Ocean and all that other stuff, that it became even more important to know what is going on so that we can react in a, in a timely manner. What would you say, what kind of investments, what kind of uh, capabilities that we need to be able to develop there to protect Canadians' sovereignty interests and, and security uh, looking forward to time 15 years, given that you know it takes time to put those capabilities in place? It's a great question, and, and I like how you framed it, uh, Balk. And I, I just want to pick up on a couple of things that you said before I provide the response. You know, there's a few things to consider. I mean, first of all, we don't live in isolation in terms of our physical geography, and particularly we share that with the United States. And so, you know, anything that we do in a Canadian context needs to be considered and and positioned inside that relationship, which is an absolutely foundational relationship not just from economic perspective, societal, cultural, but as it relates to integration and partnership that is the essence of North American defense. As I answer that, we have to keep that in mind. I get The second thing, and you made a really good point about the relatively sparse population of the North in relation to the vast territory that we're we're trying to cover. And it does have domestic political implication. You know, obviously, when you're talking about significant investment, one of the key motivations of, of politicians of any stripe, I'm agnostic in this regard, is that the decisions and considerations are seen through the issue of benefit cost and benefit. Unfortunately, there are things in the life of a nation that have to transcend these more traditional cost-benefit and political calculus that is often used. And we need to look beyond those. We need to look beyond those 
in a philosophical sense, and we need to look beyond those in a temporal sense. So we need to be examining the types of investments that are required through a strategic perspective, through a strategic lens that needs to, I'm prepared to be accused of being naive in this regard, we need to take politics out of this conversation. Not that you were trying to insert it, but I think it's important that this is too important for it to be subject to the vagaries and ebbs and flows of political interests. So this is goes to the essence of national interest and strategic interest, and, and therefore it has to transcend traditional party politics. It has to be a Canadian vision for the Arctic rather than X parties or Y parties, electoral take on it, but a, a long-term, like you said, a national interest-based vision. Right. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we serious about protecting this part of our territory? We should be just as serious about this as if we were concerned about something that was going along a southern border or a southern community. Now, to your question. So I think we need to start with some of the key things that present specific problems that have to be overcome in this geography and in this environment. And then we we need to look at things which we need to be able to do ourselves and therefore should not be dependent on anybody else to be able to do that. And then we can look at a collection of things that should and could be considered as part of a more integrated partnership with the United States. So the first thing is we start looking at surveillance capability, as I mentioned earlier. We have to know what's going on in our own backyard. Then that means we have to know from space down to the seabed in all dimensions and all domains, as people will call it now in the analysis, multi-domain. We also have to have the ability to pass the information and communicate anywhere in this region. And this is a real challenge as you get up into the higher latitudes Uh, communication becomes a real problem, not just because of a lack of traditional land-based infrastructure, but also because of issues associated with propagation and satellite reception and a whole variety of other things. So the bottom line is we need to know what's, what's going on. We need to be able to communicate amongst ourselves. And then arguably the next phase or, or the next step in the process would be having the ability to respond. So you know what's going on. You can talk about it. You can pass the information around, and then you can actually do something about it. If your listeners were to think of a police force in any community in Canada, there's a sense of surveillance that's ongoing. There's an ability to talk to each other, to communicate, to dispatch a response, uh, to make an assessment as to what's going on, and then to actually go to the scene and intervene as required. If you were to imagine that kind of sequence of events, perhaps over weeks and months and over tens of thousands of square kilometers, the fundamental building blocks are the same. And then you consider, okay, well, what what is it that we would want our allies, the United States specifically, to be able to do? What can we give to them? And where are the areas where we can cooperate? That allows you to have a meaningful conversation about what I call the big shiny objects. 
everybody gets excited about the big shiny objects, but you have to put those specific capabilities and those specific investments in a broader context. That's from a strictly military perspective. And then of course, looking at the ability to follow that sequence of events and to respond, I mean, one of the key considerations is you need presence. And the presence doesn't have to be exclusively military or even uh, paramilitary Coast Guard or any other agency that just needs to be a Canadian national presence. But that requires sustainment, it requires infrastructure, and it requires a motivation and an incentive for partners to want to be in the North. And they may be in the North for their own interests, but we need to start being smarter in terms of how we capitalize on that. So once again, I apologize because I've thrown a whole bunch of things into a big pot for discussion. But I'm avoiding what I characterize as the shopping list of big, shiny objects because I, I think the conversation needs to be more strategic than that. Having the broader vision, you know, more sort of 30,000 feet look, and then getting into what the shiny objects fit in to fulfill those missions is more important rather than just going around. Even when you go to the shopping, right, they suggest you to go with the list and not just go around and, and grab anything that, that catches your attention, which means you need to plan and think and prioritize um, and then find things that actually fit into it rather than buy things and then try to find a use for them. You raised a number of interesting and important points. I'm, I'm sure we can continue to talk about a couple hours on, on each of those. But I think the reality, when I when I talk to, to others about the vastness of the region, the sparse population, that it is 40% of Canadian territory, but it's larger than the European Union, but only have 115,000 people living in. The way that requires a much more clear planning in terms of presence, as you point out, a very close relationship with the United States that goes both ways, that would augment uh, Canadian capabilities. But because we are bringing to the table significant uh, contributions uh, in when it comes to the defense of, of North America, then it also provides leverage, a proper voice uh, for Canada on the developments even beyond. So I think that's a very important point to highlight. So what we do in Arctic is not only about the Arctic, but also about broader Canadian contribution to the international security, to our relations with allies. Using that, I want to sort of pivot towards the relationship with other allies. Although they do face different challenges because of the geography and proximity to Russia in different ways, our NATO allies, in, in addition to the United States, Denmark and, and Norway, which, I mean, they are very much an Arctic nation, but also have extensive experience and infrastructure that actually operates in their Arctic because of the geography. Do you see an increasing role for NATO, either institutionally in the Arctic or increasing bilateral or, or you know, maybe trilateral cooperation uh, between Canada and our European uh, NATO allies when it comes to dealing with some of the challenges uh, we, we talked about, you know, increasing militarization by Russia, you know, increasing Chinese interests for now commercial, but uh, might turn on to, um, to, to political and military later on. Do you see any you know, increased role for NATO over there or a more closer relationship with our European NATO allies when it comes to the Arctic? I'm going to give you a short answer and then I'm going to elaborate. The short answer is yes, I do see an increasing role for, for NATO. But my view on this has changed. It's evolved over the last few years. I used to subscribe to belief that you know, this is our this is our backyard. This is our problem, and, and we don't need any help. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we'll handle this. And I still maintain that we should be seeing it 
through that perspective. The problem is we aren't acting that way. The rhetoric is all there. We, we say all the right things, but we're not actually doing it, which is why I'm starting to believe that NATO should be taking a greater interest and potentially having more activity in the Arctic. So there's a couple of reasons why I believe this. The first is that I've reset my own view on the NATO frontier. We have two countries, the United States and Canada, that sit on the western side of the Atlantic. That creates a whole bunch of other considerations. Some of them are political. Um, it, it really doesn't matter. But you know, fundamentally, if we take NATO seriously, the western extremity of NATO territory uh, is the island of Hawaii. That would blow most people's minds if you actually looked at it that way. But we either are or aren't part of NATO. And the, therefore, the, the principles and the application of the founding principles of, of NATO either apply or they don't. And if they do apply, and I, I suggest that they do, then the northern approaches to what we characterize as the Canadian Arctic are just as important as are the eastern approaches to the former Soviet territory that is now so controversial and requiring NATO intervention. You could go as far as to say that maybe we need and should be asking for NATO's help, um, because if we're not able to do this ourselves, which we clearly aren't, then maybe we need to ask our allies for some help. Some allies are actually offering to help. I say this in some ways to be somewhat controversial, but to try and stimulate the conversation. Either we're going to look after our own territorial interests and our own surveillance and, and protection of our, our approaches, or we're not. Canada sends aircraft to participate in Baltic uh, air policing, and yet we struggle to maintain what is an adequate level of air defense capability for our own northern approaches. I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing Baltic air policing. In fact, I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. But, but I raise that as an analog for this broader conversation. That's one significant consideration. And I, I think the other consideration I've already touched on is it is of a shared interest and perhaps not the specific issues around archipelago itself, but the broader interests of what it is happening and is likely to happen in, in the Arctic, in the shared domain, the commons uh, of the Arctic Ocean and its, and its uh, um, associated airspace uh, in, in the coming years. And so I think we need to stop being so defensive and so protective, or we need to really step up. But we can't have it both ways. Pick one or the other. I would like to see us step up and look after ourselves in cooperation with our allies if the alternative is sufficient to get people to really start to take this seriously, then perhaps I'm prepared to stir the pot, so to speak. 
Now, I think you're spot on. Given what we just talked about in, in the beginning of the episode, the crucial nature of our Arctic security for Canada, we either do it ourselves or we do it with our partners. Not doing it and not letting others, in that sense, help us to do it is, is just not, not the way to go. Maybe the last question. If you look at 10, 15 years down the road and the year is 2035, what would be a case scenario for Canada look like in the Arctic and... What would be a worst case scenario in the Arctic look like for Canada? Well, I think a worst case scenario in what I characterize as realistic worst case, uh, I'm not going to get into cataclysmic uh, doomsday scenarios here. I think as I look at a spectrum of realistic scenarios, I think the worst case situation would be that we as Canadians have failed to make the requisite investments, both financial investments and arguably emotional and political investments in the ability to know what's going on in our own backyard, the ability for the communities to start to develop themselves. And we have allowed outside influence to permeate into the very fiber of the communities themselves, the economic opportunities that are emerging. We basically have, through more benign neglect, we have compromised the sovereignty of our nation, both physically, economically, and uh, and culturally. I think that would be the worst case scenario. And, and, and you can imagine a whole variety of things uh, related to foreign investment and an absence of proper domestic capability that I think would be tragic. And then layer on top of that, a a continued degradation of the environmental challenges that, that we're seeing. We have Northern communities that are now facing significant environmental crisis. They're not able to develop themselves part of Canada and they start to look more like branch plants of other countries and their interests. And I'm particularly concerned about China in this context. So if that's what I would see as a worst case scenario, a best case scenario would be arguably the opposite, where we have knowingly, systematically, and coherently addressed those concerns. So we have built a framework for surveillance and response in cooperation with the United States. We have developed a sophisticated arrangement for partnerships between commercial entities, the people and communities of the North, and the government of Canada. We have started to develop robust infrastructure, and more importantly, the logistic frameworks necessary to support that infrastructure. We're actually in that 15-year best-case scenario. We're actually starting to behave like an Arctic nation as opposed to just talking like we're an Arctic nation. That would be my answer to your question, Balkan. That's excellent. And I think that's a very apt point. If we know where we don't want to go, and then we can figure out where we want to go, right? So if you figure out what we need to avoid it's a lot easier to develop than where we would like to go. I think this is a very good spot, this sort of optimistic take on where we, where Canada takes being an active nation seriously and do the necessary 
work and investment and develop the relations that needs to be done to be a serious Arctic nation, that optimistic take will be a nice place to stop. Mark, thank you very much for this excellent discussion and joining me today in the, across the pond. And it's always a great pleasure to be able to talk with you and get your insights. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Balkan. I really enjoyed it. I wish you and your listeners all the best. Thanks a lot.